Welcome to Awaken to Grace. Today we are in our final study of the churches of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the church called Laodicea. You know, it's interesting because Jesus told this church that if they did not repent, that he would spew them out of his mouth. What incredible, vivid language Jesus uses. He said, I would rather you be hot or cold than to be lukewarm. And you know what? Today we're going to answer precisely what Jesus meant when he told this church such incredible statements. Well, I'm glad that you are studying these churches with us. I hope that you've been along with all of the previous churches. If not, I want to encourage you to go back in the archives and listen to the other churches because they all build upon the other. And today is our conclusion with the church of Laodicea. I'm Chad Roberts, and I'm so glad you're listening to Awakened to Grace. Well, today let's begin in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, and let's understand what the Lord wants to say, not only to His church, but I believe to the city as well. And we'll understand some historical context to the city, which will make us understand, cause us to understand much more what Jesus said and why he used the vivid language with which he did. Verse number 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of God's creation. So let's stop there and unpack this verse. Now remember, Jesus is going to use the same pattern. He's going to use the same format for all seven letters. He's going to address the church in that particular city first. And then he's going to introduce himself to the church. And every time that he introduces himself to the church, it is very specific to their situation. And then Jesus is going to diagnose his church. He's going to give uh, a word, in some cases a word of rebuke, in some cases a word of warning, in some cases a word of encouragement. Remember that Smyrna and Philadelphia were the only two of the seven that did not receive a rebuke from the Lord. And so here we are in what it was called the city of Laodicea. Now remember, we've worked our way from Ephesus up to Smyrna, over, over to Pergamum, headed east toward Thyatira, down south to Sardis, and then down to Philadelphia, and now back over to Laodicea where we finish today. Understand a couple of important things about this city. And what we know about this city is going to help us understand the weightiness of Christ's words. I want you to take some notes today, if you are a note taker, <clears throat> some things that I think will help you understand more so this, this scripture. Laodicea was famous throughout the entire Roman Empire in this day, and they were famous for several things. I'm going to give you four things they were famous for. Number one, uh, before we get into those four, just note this. They were known for their confidence in their money and in their medicine. Doesn't that sound like our country today? 
Their confidence was in their money and in their medicine. How quickly, how desperately is humanity searching for a vaccine right now as we speak? Well, this city was quite wealthy, number one, if you want to note this. There was a banking system in the, in the city of Laodicea that made the place quite wealthy as well as its trade routes. Uh, like all the other cities that were important, that were large and significant and well-known of Asia Minor of this ancient time, Laodicea was right there running with the big boys. They were an affluent, they were a prosperous city because of their banking system and because of their manufacturing. Well, not only were they a wealthy city, but they were known in their manufacturing, again, for garments. We've seen that with Sardis. We've seen it with uh, Philadelphia. We've seen it with Thyatira. You remember in Thyatira, they were so well known for their garments. They were known for a purple dye that they got out of a shellfish. You remember that? And so, remember Lydia, when, when Paul led her to the Lord, she was a seller of purple goods from the city of Thyatira. So while Thyatira were famous for their beautiful uh, purple linen, well, Laodicea was known for its shiny, for its glossy black wool garments. They were famous for this. And Jesus is going to have something to say about it. You know, it's interesting, they were also known for their optometry. They were known for their eye care. It was in the city of Laodicea that they exported one of the most important medicines of the ancient world. It was famous throughout the entire Roman Empire, and it was an eye salve. And when you put this eye salve upon the eyes, it had some healing properties within it that could cure some eye diseases. And so they were famous for their medications. They were famous for their optometry. And Jesus is going to say something specific about it. So they're known for their wealth. They're known for their black garment manufacturing. They're known for their medications. And lastly, they were known for their distasteful water. Laodicea was built about 100 feet above water, and it was very difficult to get water to this affluent city. And so what the Roman Empire did, they came in and they built aqueducts. And it's interesting because the aqueducts are still there today. As a matter of fact, a wonderful person in our church, Patty Story, has been to all seven of these ancient cities and studied the Bible there. And she was telling me just this week that, uh, that, that the pipes, those, um, the aqueducts that the Romans piped water in, she said, I've seen them with my own eyes. She said, you can see the rust in them even today. Isn't that fascinating? History coming to life. And they were known for their distasteful water. So Jesus is going to come to this church who thinks that they're very uh, well off. They think that they're doing well, but in reality, they're in a world of trouble. And notice how Jesus introduces himself in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the amen. Write the words of the amen The true and faithful witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
Now let's understand this word for word. I'm not going to deep dive the word amen today because later this month, I'm going to do a short, this month, next month, I'm going to do a short sermon series called Church Words, the Language of Heaven. You know, we use words in our churches and we're going to use words in heaven that I don't know if we fully understand the meaning of. We say things like, amen. Oh, I love it when you amen me. You know, (laughs) thank you. You know, sometimes I'll speak at a church and it's as quiet as a mouse. And that's okay. I enjoy teaching and I enjoy preaching. But oh my goodness, when people help me and when people get right there with me and they say, amen. Oh, it helps me so much. I like that. I enjoy that. But do we understand what we're saying when we say amen? Do we understand what we're saying when we say hallelujah? There are very deep and there are very rich and there are very meaningful significance to to these words that not only do we use here in church, but friends, we're going to use in heaven for all of eternity. These are church words. These are the language. This is is what we're going to be saying in heaven. And I want to know what they mean, don't you? So we're going to do a series called Church Words, the Language of Heaven. But here, here's what I want you to know today for this text. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus is called the Amen. God is called the Amen in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. Remember what we said? The the Revelation has significant roots back to the Old Testament, nearly 800 references back to the Old Testament. Well, here it is again. God is called the Amen, the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16, twice he's called that. The God of truth. Amen literally means let truth be so. Let it be so. Amen. Truth. Jesus said this in the Gospels. uh, Some translations will say, verily, verily, I say unto you. Or truly, truly, I say unto you. Literally what Jesus is saying, amen and amen, I say to you. This is truth. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself, his very essence, is truth. This is why he is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? See, right now, Pastor Phil is at Vanderbilt in Nashville. If Pastor Phil had not driven west to head to Nashville, but Pastor Phil, in all of his heart, with all sincerity, had traveled east, where would he have ended up? Somewhere toward the beach. But if Pastor Phil called Vanderbilt and said, Guys, you know, I'm so sorry I believed with all my heart. I was so sincere that we were headed the right way. Does sincerity have anything to do with truth in that instance? You can be sincere all day long and be lost (laughs) and not end up in the place you're headed. Sincerity has nothing to do with it. But yet when it comes to eternity and when it comes to salvation and when it comes to religion and when it comes to God Almighty, people in our culture today go, oh, well, as long as you're sincere. Friends, you can be sincere and be headed straight to hell. Truth matters. And this is why Jesus introduces himself and says, I am the amen. I am the true and faithful witness. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the only truth. 
You know, if you go to a physician, if you go to your doctor and you have a terminal illness, do you want your doctor to tell you the truth or do you want your doctor to say, eh, eat some more salad. I think you'll be fine. I think you'll turn out okay. No, any doctor who is doing his job will do what? Tell you the truth. Could you imagine having a doctor that was afraid to tell you the truth? Who is afraid to do blood work and afraid to tell you the truth of your results? He wouldn't be a good doctor, would he? Jesus is saying, I'm the physician to my church, and I am going to tell you the truth. Thank God for that. He is the amen. He is the true and faithful witness. He is the beginning of God's creation. Now, this has caused a world of false doctrine. This has called enormous caused enormous error in Christianity. There are certain groups, cults, who believe Jesus was created. Who believe that Jesus was a creation of God Almighty. Now, why do they believe that? One of the reasons, other than pure deception, is because of this phrase. He is the beginning of God's creation. But friends, let me tell you, this is why it's so important that we not only read the Bible, but that we study the Bible. That we understand it in its context. That we understand it in its original languages. When you look at the original language at the Greek, this word beginning is not as though you and I would use the word beginning. My children had a beginning. And I can tell you their birth dates. It doesn't mean beginning as though you and I would use it. In the Greek, it actually literally means source. The word is arche. Like we would say an archangel. It means chief. Christ is the chief of creation. He is the source of creation. Out of Christ came all creation. Jesus was not created. He has always been. Always. That's why he is Lord. And it is a false doctrine. It is error to believe that Christ was one day created. No, he's above it. Out of Christ came creation. John chapter 1 verse 3. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 18. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Out of Christ came creation. And even today, in our day, the Bible says that the universe is upheld by the word of the power of Christ. And what's Jesus saying to his church? Jesus is saying, when you wake up and when you realize what you need, this is what Jesus is saying. You're going to find out I'm everything you need. I'm going to tell you the truth Because I'm the amen, and I'm the true and faithful witness. And once you understand the truth, then you're going to be able to receive what you need from me, the source. Amen? And so can you follow the logic? He's saying, if you will see, if you will open your eyes, if you'll see your great need, and you accept my truth, then out of me, the source, you'll meet that need. And I'll give you everything that you need. What a word from the Lord. Now notice verse number 15. He says, I know your works. You know, he said this to every church. I was raised in a church culture that spoke negative about works because, uh, you know, naturally you can't, you can't earn your salvation. 
You can't work for it. Salvation is a, is a gift of God. But, you know, as a kid, what I really missed growing up in church was that good works are not negative. They're not bad. It's negative if you try to get into heaven through good works. But, no, once you're born again, once you're saved. I think Warren Wiersbe said it so well when he was alive. He said, you're not saved because of good works, but because you're saved, you should be full of good works. Now, that's getting the order right. Amen? It's not that because of good works I have salvation. No, it's because I have salvation. According to the Bible, I should be zealous over good works. I should be rich in good works. I am created in Christ to do good works. Jesus said, let men see your good works that you may glorify God and that they will glorify God. In the book of Matthew. Good works are not bad. And Jesus says, I see your works. Listen, the church ought to be full of good works today. Not to get salvation, but because of our salvation. He says, I know your works. And now notice what he says, very specific language. He says, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would be hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, do you see that? And neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Isn't that interesting? Now, I've always heard this preached, that Jesus would rather you be hot and on fire for Jesus, or he would rather you be stone cold dead than to be in the middle and be lukewarm. I don't understand that. And I don't think that's accurate. The Greek word for hot there is zestos. I mean, he does, there is something to be said for fervency, for, for passion, for being hot. But, but listen, I don't think Jesus is saying, I would rather, rather than you be in the middle, I'd rather you either be hot for me or cold for me. That doesn't make sense to me. Here instead, this is what I think he's saying. I think Jesus is saying, I would rather you be useful. I would rather you have a useful purpose than to be spiritually apathetic, than for you to be tepid or lukewarm. Now, let's understand some context here. The Romans built aqueducts to carry water. Because, they were, because the Laodicea was built 100 feet above water, they had to pipe it in. Well, here's what we know. The city of Coloss, which is who the book of Colossians was written to, Paul's letter to Colossians. If you just want some interesting history, Paul mentions the church of Laodicea in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. And apparently, according to that verse, Paul wrote the Laodiceans an actual letter just like he did the Colossians. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what he wrote to that church? And so, Coloss was very close and what came down out of the high mountains of Coloss was cold and refreshing spring mountain water. Coloss was famous for their refreshing water. Well, to the other side of Laodicea was a city named Heropolis. <clears throat> you know what Heropolis was famous for? Hot springs. And what came out of Heropolis was hot water. 
So the Romans built aqueducts from both sides, piping in water into Laodicea. And by the time the cold water and the hot water had traveled and intermingled, guess what happened to their water? Lukewarm. It was tepid. It's room temperature. You know, I brought my coffee cup up here because this is my favorite coffee cup. It's just a small one, isn't it? I was not a coffee drinker until a few years ago. I should have been a long time ago, but I didn't really uh, acquire a taste for it until about three or four years ago. Well, now this is my favorite coffee mug. <coughs> and, uh, and every morning I drink a cup of coffee, just about, not always, but just about every morning I drink coffee. Now, I'm not like some of you. I don't carry an IV of coffee with me. <clears throat> but I do enjoy my coffee. Now, I don't care for iced coffee. Some of you do. I like coffee, especially first thing in the morning. I've already had coffee early this morning. I like coffee first thing in the morning, and I like it hot. Anyone else like that? Now, have you done what I so often do? I'll drink my coffee, and I'll set it down, and I'll get busy. And I'll come back, and I'll take a sip, and what's happened to my coffee? It's gotten lukewarm. I won't demonstrate for you what I typically do, but if you take a gulp of tepid coffee, what do you do? You spit it back out. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to this church. You're ineffective if you're lukewarm. Cold beverages have their purpose, right? They can be refreshing. Hot beverages have their purpose. They can be refreshing. But lukewarm beverages? No. What does it make you want to do? It makes you want to spew it back out of your mouth. Isn't that interesting the way Jesus portrays this to his church? And what he's speaking of is the cold water mingled with the hot water out of Colossus and Heropolis. And everyone in the city of Laodicea would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. So going back to the truth of who Jesus is, he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you've lost your effectiveness. Now, why have they lost their effectiveness? The true physician's about to tell us. <coughs> Notice the next verse. What verse am I in? 18? 17? Help me out with the first word or two. Oh, so here's their spiritual condition. The great physician is going to level with them and be honest with them. The physician is going to say, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. Not realizing, and here's the real diagnosis, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. Isn't it interesting that the Laodiceans thought they should be envied and Jesus thought they should have been pitied. And Jesus says, you are wretched, you are pitiable. You are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. What a diagnosis. And remember, because he's the true and faithful witness, he's going to be honest with them. You know, how many of you have a tendency to self-diagnose yourself? 
Come on now, right? Talk to me now. Don't get quiet now. We diagnose ourselves, don't we? Sadie will look up something and tell me something going on with her or the kids. I'll say, all right, WebMD. She, she. <laughs> but, oh, oh, well, thank you. Thank you, brother. That's a, that's a good deacon right there. Amen. That's a good heads up. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we do, we self-diagnose ourselves, don't we? And I can be in either category. Sometimes I can be a hypochondriac, can you? Someone can be in my office and talk about their arm hurting, and I'll tell you 30 minutes later, my arm will start to hurt, and I'll think, what in the world? My arm's starting to hurt. Isn't that silly? And then sometimes I can be the other end. Oh, no, I'm fine. How many times has Sadie tried to get me to go to the doctor? No, I'm fine. Come on, now talk to me. Any of you like that? We self-diagnose ourselves. And this church had wrongly diagnosed themselves. They said, no, we are rich. We are prosperous. We don't need anything. And the physician walks in and goes, no. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you have no idea the condition that you're in. Isn't it interesting that he told the church of Smyrna, you think you're poor, but I say you're rich. And he told Laodicea, you think you're rich, but I say you are poor. So they're conditioned, they're in trouble. They need help. So now, what does he say next? Uh, help, help me out, church. I got a lot of notes in my head. I can't, oh, great. Oh, listen to this. So here's what Jesus is going to tell them. Now, now's the prescription. They got the diagnosis. Now he's going to write the prescription. Jesus says, I counsel to you. Buy from me gold refined by the fire. Now what's Jesus saying to his church? Now remember, Laodicea is known for their wealth. Laodicea thinks they're rich. They think they've prospered. They think they don't need anything. And Jesus says, no, I I want you to be rich. Notice his desire for the church in verse 18. He, he, He wants them to be rich. He wants them to be clothed. He wants them to have sight. Jesus is for his church. But he wants to do it the right way. And he says, I counsel to you, buy from me gold that's been refined by the fire. What's he mean by that? You know what I think he's saying to the church? Stop worrying about your comfort. Be willing to pay the price. Be willing to go through sufferings. How many times has God tried to bring something into a Christian's life or tried to remove something from a Christian's life. And when things began to get uncomfortable, that Christian was not willing to walk that path. They wanted their comfort. Jesus said in the book of Amos, woe unto those that are at ease in Zion. Do you realize that God doesn't want you comfortable today? Do you realize that? Many of us have bought into the American dream that we deserve everything, and, 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 and God is so concerned about our comfort and happiness. No, my friends, there are times that God will take you through the refiner's fire. The question is, are you willing? 
Will you buy from Jesus this true gold that makes you spiritually rich? Not many people in our day is willing to do that. Not many churches are willing to do that. Not many people are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. And he says, here's my prescription. If you will receive the truth of my diagnosis, here is the source of what I'm able to give you. I'll give you true riches. I will give you refiner's gold. But you got to be willing to pay the price for it. Are we willing to do that? Number two, notice what he said. And buy for me white garments that the shame of your nakedness may be clothed. Now listen to what he's telling this church. You're walking around in your fancy, shiny, black wool garments, but in my sight, you're naked. In my eyes, it's the shame of your nakedness. <coughs> like so many of the other churches, he talks about these beautiful white garments. What's he speaking of? We've referenced it so many times in our study Revelation 19.8 will be given the finest of white linen, the righteous deeds that you do on the earth. Jesus is saying, don't worry about this world. Focus on eternity. And then notice what he says, this eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Isn't that wonderful the way Jesus says this? You're famous throughout the world for your medicine? No, you need my medicine, Jesus says. I have. Remember, he is the beginning of God's creation. R.K. He is the ark. He is the source. And Jesus is saying, everything that you need is found in me. Isn't that beautiful? And then notice what he says next. To the ones I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. I love this verse. To the ones that I love. Do you know what the word reprove here means? It literally means to expose. <laughs> to expose and convict. And here these here this church is thinking that they're rich, thinking that they're clothed, thinking that they can see and Jesus exposes it for what it is. And Jesus says, "No, in reality, you're in trouble." Would my life, would your life, would this church be in danger of the exact same diagnosis? That we think we're okay? We think we're walking with God? We think that we're spiritual? We think we're right with God? Whereas if, if we would see the truth of Jesus and the source of Jesus, would God reprove us? Would he expose ourself sustaining this church was self-sustaining they were self-made they were self they were all about themselves friends I, I don't want to live a life that way and in this culture that you and I live where everything is me and everything is I and everything is <laughs> all about us and <laughs> no I want to know what Jesus says about my life. 
Will you let Jesus expose today? Will you let him reprove you today? Will you let him show you your deficiencies today so that out of the source of Jesus, you would be made whole? And then he says, he chastens us or he disciplines us. Now, what does this word mean? This means to punish. But don't stop at the word punishment. Because it means to punish in love. It means to punish toward correcting. It means to punish toward discipline. It means that God has a goal in mind when he punishes us. Amen. And Jesus said, hey, those I love, I discipline. I mean, if, if, if you're a parent that's following biblical guidelines, do, do you discipline your kids? Why? Because you love them. You love them too much to let them grow up unruly, undisciplined, right? And it's out of love that we discipline. See, the world don't understand this stuff. The world can't understand these biblical principles of disciplining children. Why? Because they've never known the discipline and the love of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus said, let me tell you, the ones I love, it's the ones I chasten. It's the one I punish toward discipline. That's a good thing, my friends. And if you're a parent today and you've fallen into this trap of, oh, don't discipline your kids, friends, that's unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical. And you need to search your heart today. You need to search the Bible today. And you need to ask the Lord, am I rearing my children? Am I raising my children in the fear of the Lord? And I don't mean fear as in afraid God's going to strike you dead. I mean fear as in respect. I mean fear as in not only are they going to obey you, in their childhood, they're going to grow up to obey God in adulthood. Amen? So don't fall into this trap of our society that you can't discipline your kids. It is biblical, my friends. And it's exactly what the Lord does with you. And if you'll do it as the Lord does it, you're not doing it out of anger. You shouldn't discipline your children out of anger. You should discipline your children out of love. Amen? And that's sometimes hard to do. And, but be faithful in it. And, and, and put yourself in the same position. How does my heavenly father treat me? Well, that's how I need to treat my children, right? Sometimes God has to talk to us, and sometimes God has to discipline us. And sometimes it can just be. A, I had to have a talk with Piper last week. We decided we'd been so busy lately, we wanted to have a family night down in our den and just be a family. Well, Piper got a little uh, nine-year-old that felt like a 15-year-old's attitude and uh, decided she wasn't going to join the family. She's going to stay in her room. So I had to go have a talk with her. And I go in and I say, Piper, and I was waiting for, you remember that show Full House? How when Danny Tanner to go in, they'd cue the music. I was waiting for that music to cue, but it never did. <laughs> but I went in and I said, Piper, we're downstairs as a family. Why are you not with us? Well, I don't want to. But we're down here as a family. You need to come join us. Well, I don't want to. I said, Piper, it's important to me. And it's important to your mom that you come join us. And you know what that little girl said? 
little smart mouth. She said, she said, well, you've had me for nine years. <laughs> to which I said, then 30 or 45 more minutes isn't going to hurt you, is it? <laughs> and I made her give me a hug. She didn't want to do it. But I made her give me a hug. And what an opportunity to tell her how much I loved her. And you know what? By the time we walked downstairs, a switch had flipped. And she was right there with us having fun and laughing. And listen, friends, we got to discipline our kids. We got to correct our children because that's what the Lord does for us. He says, those whom I love, I reprove, I expose, I convict, I chasten, I punish, I discipline. I do it with the love of correcting. And then he says, and I love this, this is my favorite phrase of the text. He says, be zealous and repent. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I think out of all the church ages, that Ephesus, the, the age of the Ephesus church, the Smyrna age, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, it's to the church of Laodicea that God says, be zealous. You know why I think that is? Because friends, you and I have 2,000 years of church history in our rearview mirror and we can learn, and we can correct ourselves, and we can get on target with who Jesus wants us to be. And let me tell you, you and I can live the most zealous lives for Jesus Christ, I think, than what's ever been possible. If we receive the truth, and if we see Jesus as our source, then we'll repent. And then last, or, or, or another verse here, two more. <coughs> Notice what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open to me, I will come in and dine with him and him with me. Now, what's Jesus saying here? I find it interesting. Now, we use this verse a lot in evangelistic times and altar calls. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's inappropriate. But in its true context here, I want you to pay attention and notice Jesus isn't talking to sinners. He's talking to his church. And what I find that's very fascinating is in Revelation 1 and with the church of Ephesus, Jesus is in the midst of the candle stand, right? He's walking in the middle of the candlestick. But when we come to Laodicea, he's on the outside of his church knocking to get in. What a vivid picture. Now, why is Jesus on the outside? Let me tell you, we may have the best music in town and we may have comfortable uh, meeting space and we may have great programs. But let me tell you, the number one question that this church ought to ask ourselves today is, is Jesus on the outside trying to get in? You need to ask your heart today. I may read the Bible. I may join small groups. I may serve on a team. I may check all the right boxes. I may do morning devotions. I may have the Bible on my phone. But at the end of the day, is Jesus on the outside of my life trying to get in? Or have I opened the door warmly to him? Could it be that you're in church every weekend? Could it be that you pray before you meals and you pray before you go to bed? Could it be that you even read some scripture, but in reality, Jesus is on the outside of your life? Examine your heart today. Sit down with the physician of your soul. 
And let him tell you the truth. Let him reprove. Let him expose your true condition and where you are. Because he has what you need. He's not going to turn you away. In reality, he's knocking. And he wants that sweet fellowship with you. Notice what he said. If anyone will open, I'll come into him. And I'll dine with him. And him with me. You know, in the, in the ancient culture here, food was so prized and it was such an intimate thing. I, I want you to think about this. If you and I have a meal together today, it's really no big deal, right? We'll run out. and I mean, good night. We'll, we'll go grab something. I have lunch appointments all the time. If you're somebody who likes to eat, make a lunch appointment with me because I like to eat too. We'll go talk Jesus and we'll eat. But it's no big thing. I have lunch appointments all the time with people I've never met. The first time I've ever met them is we'll sit down for a lunch appointment. But in that culture, they didn't do that. It was a very intimate thing to eat together. As a matter of fact, this was their culture, and this was the behavior of their culture. If you and I sat down and ate a meal together, what their belief was, was that the food that my body absorbed and the food that your body absorbed connected us and made us one. It meant fellowship, my friend. And this is what Jesus is saying to this church who's so far off track, who has blown it so bad. Jesus is still saying, I want to be with you and I want fellowship with you. Are you listening today and you feel that way that you have blown it? That you have gotten so far off track, you've gotten so far away from the Lord that God would say to your life, you're wretched. God would say to your life, you're pitiable. God will say to you, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. But yet, Christ still desires for you to open the door. And He'll come and He'll make things right. He'll come and He'll help you. He'll come and He'll bring exactly what it is that you need. Isn't it amazing? Now, why does He say dine with them? Because, again, going back to the Greek, this is speaking of the last meal of the day. Now, listen to this. This is so important. Don't miss this. I'm almost finished. He's speaking of the last meal of the day. He's speaking in the Greek, it's sup, supper. And, and, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, don't miss your opportunity. Don't miss the last meal of the day before the night, before judgment comes in the night. Don't miss your opportunity. So you're here today. I want to lovingly warn you, don't keep the door shut to Christ. It could be your last opportunity. Men cannot come to Christ on their own. They must be drawn by the Holy Spirit. God must convict you. He must disturb you. He must disrupt you. He has to speak to your conscience. And you know what's sad, my friend, is when you keep that door shut, you know what it has a tendency to do? It has a tendency to get thicker through the years. And some of you may have heard the voice of God in your life when you were young, but you didn't open. You may have heard the voice of God in your college years, but you didn't open. You may have heard the, the voice of God at some point in your life, but you kept the door closed. Friends, don't let it thicken to where right now it sounds like this, but years later it may only be like this. Open the door. And he says, if any man will open, I'll come in. <laughs> He's not embarrassed by you today. 
He's not ashamed of you today. And listen, my friends, he's not angry at you today. He says, I will come in and I'll dine with him. And he with me. Look at the intimacy there. What does Jesus eat of? Have you ever asked yourself that? What's he eat of? You know what he partakes of? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. He partakes of that fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. That's our fellowship with Jesus. And then lastly, he says, verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne just as I have conquered and sat with my father on his throne. One writer said it so well. Fellowship in the supper room leads to reigning in the throne room. Amen. Friends, he's speaking of the millennial kingdom here. That one day, those who have followed Jesus, we will rule and reign with Jesus. This entire earth will be filled with the glory of God. This entire earth will be filled with righteousness. What a difference from our day, what we're seeing right now, right? It'll be filled with justice. Every wrong will be made right. Friends, where's your life today? Is the door shut between you and Jesus? Would you say, I'm doing well, but Jesus is saying, you're sick today. Would you say, no, I'm quite spiritual, but Jesus would say, no, you're quite wretched. Would you say, I know the Lord, but the Lord would say, I don't know you. Let's receive the truth, the amen today. And receive from Jesus the source, his forgiveness, his grace, his help, his strength, his mercy. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I don't know your condition today, but Jesus does. You don't know my condition, but Jesus does. What's he saying to you? Are you in need of his prescription? Are you in need of what Jesus can give you today? Or are you self-sufficient? Are you self-absorbed? Are you self-sustaining? Could it be that you've misdiagnosed yourself? Right there where you are in your seats, I want to invite you right now to pray and ask the Lord to change things in your life. Perhaps you're lukewarm today. Perhaps there's no usefulness in your life toward the things of God. You're neither hot nor are you cold. Ask the Lord to change that today. Lord Jesus, we come to you the head of your church. We come to you, the amen, the true and faithful witness, the source of God's creation. We come to you, Lord Jesus, asking you to help us repent. Help us to be zealous in our repentance. That you would come and once again do your work in our life. Once again, Lord.
once again. Bring usefulness to us, Lord Jesus, that whether we're hot or we're cold, we're useful for the Lord, but we're not tepid. We're not lukewarm. I love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for your words to your church. Thank you for your words to us today. And as we have taken these weeks to study your letters to your church, God, I pray that we apply everything we've learned and that we become a better church for it. A people, Christ followers without spot and without wrinkle as we await your glorious return. In Jesus' name, amen.